Good morning. Go ahead and uh, open your Bibles back up to 2 Samuel 23. And I hope uh, those of you who are expecting maybe a baby boy were encouraged by today's reading. You got a lot of good uh, suggestions for names there. I expect a few to just pop out in the next couple months. Actually, uh, I'd like to open with a word that can cause us a lot of trouble. And that word is fame. Fame. Now, uh, even though fame can be quite the troublemaker, I imagine it's also something that most of us wouldn't mind having just a little bit more of, or a lot of, if we're being honest. Now, I know most of us aren't looking to be um, so famous that we can't leave our house, you know, so that whenever we leave, we're mobbed by crazy, adoring people wherever we go. No, but wouldn't it be nice just to have a little bit more recognition, to be a little bit more well-known in the places that we do frequent regularly? For instance, wouldn't it be nice to have some more recognition at your place of work or uh, in your professional guild? Imagine, you know, your sense of fulfillment along with all the wonderful new opportunities that might come your way. Teens, how about you? Wouldn't life be all that much better if you were just a little bit more famous at school, you know, to be popular with all the people that you want to be popular with? Well, whatever social circles you run in, whether they be large or small, maybe it's even primarily church for many of you, my hunch is we occasionally imagine ourselves being a little bit more fulfilled, maybe happy, if we had a little bit more shine there, wherever there may be. Now, I'm not bringing this up because I think that the desire for fame is, is all bad, or that you know, the desire for recognition is, is completely irredeemable, because we actually come to a passage today in 2 Samuel that is all about recognizing some incredibly accomplished and therefore famous people. So in one sense, it does actually affirm the goodness of fame. But on the flip side, I think it also shines this hot spotlight on the brokenness, incompleteness of fame alongside the limitations of all human accomplishments. And I think through all this, what our passage wants to ultimately point us to today is something I like to call redeemed fame, which can only be given by one true redeemer. Now, my guess is that most of you, as you heard this chapter read aloud this morning, weren't uh, taken up into the third heaven in some sort of uh, worshipful ecstasy or whatever. So I want to recognize up front that this is a challenging text. Uh, this list of uh, obscure ancient names and, and super condensed, slightly confusing military stories. What I can assure you is that this passage actually meant quite a lot to its original audience. And I think through the lens of the gospel, it can mean a lot for us as well. So just want to encourage you to stick with me as we... Uh, 
try to step in to this passage and work through this ancient hall of fame. And that's what it is. Because if we look closely at this list, you know, it's this uh, actually quite fascinating honor roll that really showcases the impressive strength of the kingdom of Israel under David, which we've been looking at for 23 chapters now. All right? Look with me at verse 8, which sums up what this whole section is about. Verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Just want to pause there. Which means every name in this chapter is of a mighty man or an elite military hero that served under King David. And these guys, they're basically divvied up into two elite groups. First, we have the three. And then the other is called the 30. And this first group referred to as the three. This is the group that represents the elite of the elite, right? Three mighty men that really stand out, even amongst the standouts. Um, in modern terms, let's go with the NBA. These three would be the Jordan, the Kobe, the LeBron of David's kingdom. And I'll stick with that order. Sorry, but not sorry. You can talk to me about it later. Um, so this first group, referred to simply as the three, this is the group that um, we got to learn about first, right? They, they kind of sum up the strength and character of David's kingdom. And the first mighty man of David that we're told about is Josheb Bashabeth in verse 8. And we're told he was chief of the three, right? And what was his claim to fame? What made him chief? Basically, this guy was unbeatable, right? We're told uh, he wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Wow. Now, just in case you're wondering, what, what's meant by this phrase, one time? Uh, does it mean that he defeated 800 men in a single battle, which sounds kind of hard to believe? Well, I just want to clarify, this Hebrew phrase translated here as one time is often used in the Old Testament to refer to actually one entire campaign, which in war can span weeks, months, even years. But even then, right, this is, uh, this is a pretty astounding accomplishment by any human measure, which is why he's also the chief. And the next warrior we're told about here, he's also pretty amazing, uh, a fellow named Eleazar, who we learn about in verse 9. Look with me there, verse 9. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. And we're told here, Eliezer's most famous deed was that along with David, he defied or he taunted the Philistine army, drawing the, the, the battle to himself. Now, why would Eliezer do something this foolish, right? Why would he pick a fight like this? Well, as it turns out, we're told that the taunted, the taunted Philistines... Um, were, were basically drawn away by Eleazar. He basically set up this strategic diversion, which then allowed the other men of Israel to escape. 
to withdraw to safety. And this is why Eleazar was a hero, right? Because he put his own life at risk to save others. He drew the attack away from his comrades to himself. And actually, when the fight did finally come to him, we're told dramatically in verse 10, he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. Now imagine that scene. This army is furiously attacking you. You have mocked them. You have triggered them. And Eleazar fights so hard, so relentlessly, that his sword, uh, his grip on the sword cramps down like a vice. Right? It's locked. You can imagine it's shaking. And he doesn't let go until the victory is won. Pretty cinematic, actually. Now we come to the last story of the three, and this actually has to be my favorite. It's about a man named Shema who defended a farm of all things. Look with me at verse 11. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. Basically, Shema's claim to fame was that he defended some farmland, a plot of lentils, against an invading army. Now imagine this scene, right? The angry horde of Philistines come to your town looking to plunder, and we're told that most of the men didn't think this was worth fighting for, so they just flee, right? They fled. Can you imagine maybe being the farming family at that point? Nobody cares. You're worthless to them. No one rises up to defend you except for Shema, right? Shema, we're told in verse 12, like a boss, he takes his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And that's the elite group known as the three. Like I said, I I get the sense that if a movie were, were made of the life story of any of these guys, I think it would be pretty epic and pretty much, uh, be right up there with any Marvel classic. But I really don't want us to get too excited about any single one of them or any of their astounding and mighty deeds of strength or courage because what we need to see first and foremost is that this section isn't ultimately about any one of them. As it turns out, Not a single one of these guys is given the credit for how things turned out in the end. Because as it turns out, there's only one mentioned in our passage that gets the honor, praise, and the glory for Israel's deliverance from their enemies. Did you catch that all-important detail at the end of verse 10? Which reads, And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And just in case we missed that one, it's repeated again at the end of verse 12. 
and the Lord worked a great victory. You see, 2 Samuel doesn't really preserve these stories of, of any mighty men so that we end up ultimately delighting in or, or putting our hope in the strength and cleverness of people, even mighty ones. You know, while that may be the underlying message of all other human hall of fames, this is not that. Right? Rather, the big point that we're supposed to take away from the whole story of Israel from beginning to end goes simply like this. It is the Lord who brings about the great victory. And that, that Hebrew word translated victory there, it's the word that is also often translated as deliverance or salvation. So put another way, what we always need to remember is that it is the Lord who works out our great salvation. He ends up to defend what no one else will, what everybody else sees as worthless. We'll be coming back to this, but if there is one truth that I think the scriptures affirm over and over again from beginning to end, is this one, that the Lord Almighty has saved and will save his people. And he alone will get the glory for this. Now, why is that? Why is, it, why is it that it all comes back to God and his work? Well, our passage reminds us because if it's left up to man, if it's always up to man's victory, what you're going to see is that it always falls short. And tragically so. We get a growing sense of this from the last section of the passage, from verse 18 on, which covers the other elite group known as the 30. And this list uh, begins by highlighting two guys that almost made the cut, right, to join the elite three. Two men named Abishai, which you've heard about, you know, brother of Joab, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, who is described as a doer of great deeds. I mean, how many men give everything that they've got to try to go down in history in some way or another being described that way, right? So this guy, you know, he's just, he's a stud. Now, um, I do want to point out a technicality. It's important to notice that there are actually 34 names listed in the group known as the 30. Uh, and this isn't because ancient people don't know how to count, all right? But rather, the 30... It was simply a moniker, you know, like a popular nickname for a group that probably kept the membership right around that same number. Um, the 34 or 35, 36 just doesn't have the same ring to it. But there is something, aside from the name, that is really surprising about this list. It's a, it's a big head scratcher. It's actually a name that is mentioned twice, but only indirectly. The name is actually one of the most significant names in the book of 2 Samuel, but his name, for some reason, is excluded from a list where he should be obviously included. Of course, I'm talking about Joab. He's mentioned as the brother, right? But only as the brother. 
And Joab, as, as many of you know, from the very uh, early part of David's reign, was his right-hand man, his second-in-command. Um, and Joab is a guy that he appears to start his race very well. But throughout the course of 2 Samuel, he ends very poorly. Right? As a result, I think uh, he ends up being disqualified from David's kingdom, as well as this list. You can read more about what happens to Joab in 1 Kings, where actually we learn that Joab would outright betray King David. Um, and David would actually command his son Solomon to bring justice to Joab for his high treason. In fact, it was the sword of Benaiah, the guy mentioned here in verse 20, that would end up bringing final justice to Joab. Basically, Joab ends up being this tragic figure in the end. A, a, a warning to any of us who would claim to be all about God's kingdom while refusing to walk in step with the ways of the king, with the ways of the kingdom. Joab was one of these guys that regularly called David his Lord, Lord, but often acted as if he had no real obligation to actually obey his king, especially when his own deluded sense of power, honor, ego, and control ran into conflict with the words and commands of the king. Now, why do you think Joab drifted? What caused him to start so well and end so poorly? Do you think maybe it, somewhere along the way, Joab might have forgotten this central truth? Maybe he loosened his grip on this key truth, which is the Lord brings about the victory. The Lord alone does it, not the strength or wisdom of men. What a sobering warning to us if we dare try to pursue the kingdom of God apart from the ways and words of God's king, neither of which were hidden to Joab and actually much less hidden to us. This is why we need to carefully and prayerfully examine ourselves, asking the hard questions of where we're likely putting our hopes for ultimate victory, right, or salvation, because that's also where your ultimate loyalties will be revealed. So uh, is your hope and loyalty in such things as your finances? Or how about recognition and approval from men? You know? And these men come in all sorts of different groups like uh, your tribe, your tongue, your nation, or even your political party of preference. Are any of these even close to your hope and loyalty in Christ Jesus? Please don't forget, none of these other things can bring the victory. 
no matter how much they'd like to have you believe that. Whatever you're most deeply hoping for, remember, only the Lord can bring this victory. Now, uh, in addition to who is not on this list, we're also especially humbled and actually a little shocked by the name that does appear on the list at the very end. In fact, this is the list that brings the list of the 30 to a stunning close. Look with me at verse 39, where the last name of the mighty men of David is none other than Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite. This whole section, which serves as this uh, snapshot again of David's strength and kingdom, it ends on this painful off note, right, that reminds us how David falls terribly short, reminds us of his weakness, his sin. You know, 2 Samuel doesn't present Uriah as this perfect man, but he does, but the, the book does present him as an exceptional man, right? Devoted, courageous, faithful, a true servant of Israel. But David, his king, in a horrific abuse of his power and position, rewarded Uriah with murder so that he could steal away his wife. I think the writer of 2 Samuel is trying to make a point here. And I think it means this. You want to know what the greatest weakness in David's kingdom was? It wasn't guys like Joab. No, it was David himself. This is also why we should not boast in men at the end of the day. We can't say stuff like, oh, it was David and his mighty men that brought about the great victory. Which again raises this all-important question. Where can we look to for hope? Where can we look to for actual deliverance and salvation? Well, uh, I think we actually see the answer foreshadowed in our very passage. Right near the middle, in the longest story found in the chapter. It's a story that, uh, by looking back at one of uh, David's best moments, looks ahead to the greatest victory that the Lord will ever accomplish for his people. Look with me at verse 13, where we're told about how David's mighty men, how they risked everything to go into hostile enemy territory during harvest season to bring back, of all things, something for David to drink. Verse 13. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. So this event probably took place early in David's reign, and even perhaps while he was on the run from Saul. 
In either case, there David is. He's uh, out in the cave and trying to evade the hordes of Philistines who are encamped nearby and who have also set up fort in his hometown of Bethlehem. And what is probably just like this passing moment of, of deep frustration and longing where David cries out, you know, for the simple pleasure of, I just want a cup of water from home, right? Which doesn't seem possible right now because it's basically run over with Philistine enemy forces. But crazy enough, David's men overhear this. They hear his cry. And out of love for their king, they decide to make his passing wish come true. All right, so going against all sound reason, they decide to risk their very lives, go into enemy territory to fetch some sweet water from a certain well in Bethlehem. Look with, look with me at verse 16. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. So these, these three mighty men, they risked life and limb, and they do so victoriously, and they, they fetch David some of this precious water. But then, surprisingly, David refuses to drink it. And although we might think that David's men would be offended by this, my guess is that they were actually... Um, even more impressed. They came to admire and respect David even more on account of this refusal. Because it was out of love, right? David, out of love for his men, refused this water because it was too costly to obtain. You know, might as well, it's so costly that it might as well have been the blood of these men that were being served to him in this cup. No way could he accept such an offering. So we're told David poured it out, and he offered it unto the Lord. Because he was really the only one who was worthy of such an offering. It was way too precious for him. And like I said, this whole scene turns out to be one of David's shining moments as king, where he just simply denies himself for the sake of his servants, it is one of his shining moments because it's listed right here alongside all these amazing, mighty deeds. Now, doesn't this remind you of yet another king from David's line? A king that was also born in Bethlehem, who from the day of his very birth was under threat from rival kings that would threaten his very life. Meaning, upon entering into this world, he crossed into enemy territory. But as it turns out, he crossed in because it was harvest season. And this king actually entered as one quite unlike other kings. Firstly, because this son of David 
was superior to them all, greater than them all, because he came as the king who was fit to rule over the very kingdom of God itself. No other man was qualified for this, not even David. But to our utter surprise, this king of kings would proclaim that he entered into our plot not to be served, but to serve, even at the cost of his own life. In fact, he proclaimed that he would give his life as a ransom, and he came for this purpose. And it's this ransom that would open access to an endless well of living water for a thirsty world so that whoever would drink of it would never thirst again. And one fateful night, right before this king would face the greatest battle of all, this king would offer his servants a most costly drink, a drink so costly that he could only describe it in terms of his own blood poured out from his very own body. So, surrounded by his disciples, Christ Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I'm sure you've noticed, when you look at Jesus, what you're actually seeing is the ultimate mighty man of God. Right? Almighty, self-sacrificing, and willing to do what no one else could or would do which is lay his life down for sinners. That's how Romans 5 verse 7 puts it. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because at the end of the day, these sinners were of great value in his eyes. Fame before men is never enough. Only being known by God is enough. And on that cross, he shed his very lifeblood for them, for me, for you. A lifeblood that God would accept as worthy enough to cover to forgive the debt of sins for the whole world. And as Jesus' blood was poured out before his Father for the sins of the world, it's at this point that his men actually come to despair a little bit. They see this initially as his greatest defeat. It's over. He's dead. But in three days, he rose, right? He didn't stay dead. 
And this resurrection means that his victory was clearly vindicating his victory, right? Where after he rises, he actually continues to rise. He ascends to the very right hand of his father where he sits, resting in victory, interceding for his saints, where he awaits them with another cup, a new cup, a cup of victory over all the evil principalities, powers, and kingdoms that actually oppose God's people. Which means that our victory in him will one day be fully revealed once and for all when our final enemy, death, is done away for good. And the kingdom is ushered in in full. The good news that I proclaim to you today is that the Lord who gives this great victory is none other than Jesus the Christ, the son of David, God and King. And as we prepare to partake of his bread, his body, his cup, his blood. May we rejoice and praise in him who is our great salvation. Amen.